The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are simply that, opinions. All are presumed innocent until proven otherwise in a court of law. Sensitive topics are discussed. Discretion is advised. Hi, everyone, and welcome to a very special episode of the Court TV Podcast. It's an audio replay of a show we premiered on Court TV called Black and Blue, a Court TV special. It's an in-depth look at the relationship between the American judicial system and people of color, and it examines everything from the racial origins of citizens' arrest laws to the use of deadly force and what it will take to make things more just in our system. We're very proud of the special, which is why we wanted to bring it to you as this week's podcast episode. Have a listen. Thank you for joining us. I'm Court TV crime and justice reporter Julia Janae, and this is Black and Blue, a Court TV special on how blacks in America are policed by law enforcement and everyday civilians. For the next hour, we're going to be diving into the most compelling stories in our country, bringing you a unique look at the movement, the law, and the future of justice. Come with us for this special edition of Court TV. I can Americans by the tens of thousands protest the killing of George Floyd by a police officer. He didn't deserve to die over $20. A national movement is reignited. Ahmaud Arbery, a young man chased down and shot dead while jogging through a neighborhood. The national conscience is pierced. It's heartbreaking. It's, it's 2020. And this was a lynching of an African-American man. How did we get here? Please call the cops. I'm going to tell them there's an African-American man threatening my life. What has to change? Seeking justice. Seeking justice. Seeking justice. How do we reach a better future? If we don't reverse what's going on now, then we're going to be doomed as a society. Tonight, a candid conversation from the nation's leading voice in legal journalism, Black and Blue, a Court TV special report. Joining us tonight for the entire hour is attorney David Atunga, graduate of Harvard Law. David, thank you for being with us. Thank you for having me here, Julia. I'm honored to be here for such an important conversation. I mean, we need to examine how we got to this point as a country in order to move forward in a positive direction. Absolutely, a sentiment that's on the hearts and minds of so many people right now. First, we are going to start with a look back. For nearly two months, we've been inundated with images that have invoked outrage, shock, and pain images of attacks on people of color who were often doing everyday things. First tonight, we look at the law and legal concepts that have created a framework that empowered this policing of black citizens. February 23rd, 2020, 25-year-old Ahmaud Arbery is chased and gunned down in a South Georgia neighborhood. The men allegedly responsible said they thought he was a burglary suspect. Arbery's death sparked outrage, especially because for 74 days, no one was arrested. The reason, Georgia's citizen's arrest statute, a more than 200-year-old law. UC Berkeley professor Charles Henry explains how this law and many others reach back to the country's darkest hour. And it's a story that then is entwined in ways that 
uh, we refuse to see when, 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 when we, we teach that history. Henry says the earliest form of this type of policing traces back to the early 1700s with the inception of slave patrols created to stop slaves from escaping. There was a past system, right? Uh, you, you couldn't take, uh, blacks couldn't take whites to court. They couldn't testify whether you were free or slave. And so these, these patrols sort of served as civilian police uh, with the power of life and death over any black that they encountered. And that kind of attitude sort of persists after the Civil War. With the end of the Civil War came a surge of criminal laws to control a newly free population. Uh, supposing you've been uh, a slave and you've worked all your life and you decide, you know, well, I'm not going to work for a while. Well, there were laws against vagrancy. Uh, well, what happened if you didn't work? Well, you were arrested, sent you back into the fields this time. You know, uh, the, 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 the profit went to back to the slave owner, not to you as a free person now working because you were a convict. And so we see a whole series of laws that we still see the remnants of today. Jim Crow laws in the South deepened the legally acceptable divide between whites and blacks and strengthened the notion that one race was qualified to police the other. That's the privilege and the sinister nature of white supremacy. Landmark Supreme Court cases like Plessy versus Ferguson upheld the constitutionality of racial segregation. Decades later, in 1954, Brown versus Board of Education launched the start of integration and statutes that specified race began to disappear. But the laws born out of inequality remained, and attitudes did too, says Pastor Otis Moss of Trinity United Church of Christ in Chicago. They're operating with that ideology, but then they felt that they had the right to be able to become uh, self-proclaimed police officers for that community. Based on allegations that race played a factor in the shooting, Moss believes the Arbery case mirrors the lynchings of a different era. Two individuals who attacked Ahmaud Arbery were people who were struggling and dealing with the idea that black skin has been weaponized. If I see someone black, and therefore it must be a nefarious. You can see a definite connection between the sort of patrols uh, of, of the antebellum period, uh, white control over blacks, the, the development of the Ku Klux Klan, vigilante groups, and now these laws that uh, stand your own ground laws. Anti-discrimination and civil rights movements have attempted to change the ways laws perceive African Americans. The more we're aware of our history, uh, I think the more likely we are to have serious efforts at reform. Joining us now to discuss this special guest, Tim Wise. He's an anti-racist essayist and educator, also the author of several books on race, privilege, and inequality. Tim, thank you for being with us. Attorney David Otunga also with us. But Tim, let me start with you. You authored sure. Race, Crime, and the Politics of Fear in America. Why is fear so historically powerful? Well, you know, it's fear, but let me be clear, it's also contempt. I think what is written into the law is really a contempt for black freedom and for black life. And the way in which one enforces that contempt is by developing stereotypes which then inculcate fear. But really what this country has been rooted in is not so much being afraid of black bodies as it is having contempt for them, feeling the right 
to dominate and control them. Now, fear becomes a weapon that's used. But if you go back to the very beginning of this period, you know, you do not um, attack that which you fear. You tend to try to get away from that which you fear. So if you were actually afraid of black people, you wouldn't approach them as vigilantes, as happened to Ahmaud Arbery. You wouldn't, uh, you know, threaten to call the police on them as as Amy Cooper did in New York City in Central Park. You wouldn't get up in the face of that which you fear and yell at it and and say that you're going to, uh, in some sense, call police to to bring that person to potentially to jail. Uh, you would avoid it. And so I think what we're really dealing with is a history of white supremacy in which those of us who are white have been led to believe that law enforcement is on our side because that's how it is functioned. And black and brown folks know that historically it is functioned as a tool of oppression. That's not hyperbole, it's not opinion, uh, it is fact. For hundreds of years, that was the only real purpose of law enforcement vis-a-vis -vis black people. It wasn't to come get the cat out of the tree. It wasn't to give little Johnny a ride around in the neighborhood to show him how gosh darn exciting it was to be a policeman. It was to enforce the laws of white supremacy, whether those were slave codes, segregation laws, the war on drugs, whatever the case might be. David, there are no longer black codes. There are not laws that specifically have terms like black or Negro in them. But what do you see as a problem in the way our laws are created now? Well, I think the problem is, you know, historically speaking, this country has sought out to control African-Americans since they first came over on the slave ship. Um, you know, take it to the Reconstruction era, the Jim Crow laws. Then it was just disguised as mass incarceration. Now, today, we still have those systems in place, those laws, but they're much more subtle. They're not as in your face as Jim Crow laws. But that's why, you know, that we have doctrines like stand your ground and citizens arrest. You have citizens out here thinking they can take a black person's life into their own hands. These, th these problems still happen today. They're just not so obvious, but they're there. Tim, quickly, I want you to have the last word. You train corporate employees on dismantling racism. How do you approach people who say racism is not a problem anymore, and if it is, it's minimal? Well, here's the problem. White Americans have never believed that racism was a big problem at the moment you ask them about it. They're willing to say it was bad 50 or 100 years previously because that doesn't take a lot of courage to acknowledge. But even in the early 60s, before civil rights laws were on the books, at the height of the civil rights movement, two out of three white Americans said black people were treated equally in this country. So what I say to people like that is, if your ancestors, if your parents and grandparents could be so wrong even at a time when in retrospect we realized things were unequal. If your parents and grandparents could say there was no problem, even at a time when you know full well there was, what does that say about the ability of white Americans to discern the reality that black people and brown people in this country are living? I would say that it says we're probably not the best judge of when racism is a thing and we ought to learn to listen to black folks because they know their lives better than we do. Tim Wise, thank you so much for joining us. David, you're gonna stick around coming up What's really behind the 911 calls on black people for doing everyday activities? When we come back, Court TV takes a look at how cell phone and surveillance videos are changing the narrative when it comes to policing African Americans. I did see on the news about the story about Ahmad and um just you know just thinking about the similarities between the cases and it just it's heartbreaking it's heartbreaking to know um what he went through um 
as a young man and what his family is going through. Um, it's very, very heartbreaking. That was Sabrina Fulton, the mother of Trayvon Martin, talking about the death of Ahmaud Arbery and how it is similar to her son's 2012 shooting. Welcome back to Court TV special, Black and Blue. I'm Julia Janae. This hour, we are examining the justice system's relationship with African Americans and how we can all be a part of the solution. Court TV's Julie Grant looks at how surveillance and cell phone videos are shedding light and maybe helping to bring justice to white civilians who police black Americans. Something's wrong with him. Yeah, he's coming to check me out. He's got something on his hand. Are you following him? Yeah. Okay, we don't need you to do that. Okay. That's George Zimmerman talking to a 911 dispatcher before confronting 17-year-old Trayvon Martin and shooting him to death in February 2012. It was perhaps the most infamous case of a civilian policing a black person doing an everyday activity. Verdict, we the jury find George Zimmerman not guilty. The verdict was driven in part by Zimmerman's story that he was defending himself against an attack. There was no video to prove otherwise. George Zimmerman was the only witness to the account. So he was the only one who could share his side of the story. And that was the story that the jury heard. Well, what did they do? What did they do? Someone told me they did. Now, with the widespread use of surveillance cameras and cell phone video. I have every right to call the police. You cannot sleep in that room. Narratives may be changing, paving the way for what seems to be more accountability. What we're going to see is more people taking responsibilities with their phones. People are more aware of their own responsibility in the community. You want to call the police on them. I have called You want to call the police on them for having a barbecue on a Sunday at the lake. Yes. Two years ago in Oakland, California, this woman was ridiculed on social media. She became known as Barbecue Becky after she called police on black men barbecuing in a park. Illegally selling water without a permit? Social media dubbed this woman Permit Patty after she called 911 to report a black girl for selling water on a San Francisco sidewalk without a permit. Sorry, I'm asking you to stop Please don't come close to me. This recent encounter in New York Central Park made headlines after it was posted to Facebook on Memorial Day. I'm going to tell them there's an African-American man threatening my life. Please tell them whatever you like. The man recording on his cell phone is bird watcher Christian Cooper. He had asked the woman named Amy Cooper to follow park rules and leash her dog. I'm being threatened by a man in the ramble. Please send the cops immediately. After the incident, Amy Cooper said she is not a racist, but it was not enough to convince her employer. Franklin Templeton fired Cooper and tweeted, we do not tolerate racism of any kind. This video was key evidence in a case covered by Court TV, Florida versus Michael Draca. Convenience store surveillance video shows white Florida resident Michael Draca arguing with a black woman he believed was illegally parked in a handicapped spot on July 19th, 2018. As I come out like this, he's taking his step. Okay. Taking a step? Taking his steps towards me. But on the store surveillance video, the jury saw the victim, Marquise McLaughlin, returning to his family's car. McLaughlin shoves Draca and was stepping back when Draca pulled out his gun and shot and killed McLaughlin. The jury did not believe this was a case of self-defense and convicted Draca of manslaughter in front of court TV cameras in August of 2019.
Ahmaud Arbery's death in South Georgia may have gone unnoticed by law enforcement had it not been for this cell phone video. Arbery was shot to death after being chased by three white men while out on a jog. Travis McMichael, his father Gregory McMichael, and William Roddy Bryan were all charged with felony murder. Videos like these are helping to bring some measure of justice to injustices fueled by racism. Atlanta Mayor Keisha Lance Bottoms agrees. I think had we not seen that video, I don't believe that they would be charged. And it is, uh, it's heartbreaking. It's, it's 2020. And this was a lynching of an African-American man. For TV anchor Julie Grant joins us now. Julie, thank you for that story and your reporting. As a former prosecutor and having covered cases like Florida versus Draca, how does video evidence get treated in court that may perhaps surprise the public? It's so great to be with you, Julia. Thank you for having me. We've heard that saying, a picture is worth a thousand words, right? Well, in a court of law, video is worth even more. It is a critical piece of evidence. And the issue really becomes just authentication. If one side or another can authenticate it, showing that it is what it purports to be, then it comes in and then the jury can consider that evidence. And we're not reliant on just statements from individuals who might have been there. We have a clearer picture of what occurred and that picture can't be altered in any way. So really video evidence, at the end of the day, it helps with equal protection, right? 14th Amendment has all citizens in our country enjoying equal protection under the laws. And having that evidence and furtherances in technology helps with that. The laws must be applied equally to everyone. Julie, you keep saying it, equal. That is the key word. Thank you so much. We're going to turn now to our special guests who are standing by. Attorney David Atunga is still with us. And joining us now is L. Song Richardson, Dean and Chancellor of the University of California, Irving Law School. Thank you so much for being here. I know you've done extensive search on how people make judgments in different contexts and implicit bias. Can you explain and expound how that relates to what we are seeing? Absolutely. So first, to understand unconscious bias, we need to understand a little bit about how our brains work. Our minds, in order to conserve energy, they make quick, automatic, and unconscious associations in response to a stimulus. So our brains are efficient information processors. So if you're sitting in a chair, you probably don't even think twice about the strange object that you're sitting on. Our brains do the same thing with regard to people. So in our society where racism ex existed for centuries, our brains have learned to associate certain categories with certain attitudes and stereotypes. And in our country, we have learned, our brains have learned to associate blackness with criminality and danger and whiteness with innocence. And the importance of understanding these unconscious associations is that we are impacted by them. Our perceptions, our behaviors, our judgments are impacted by these unconscious biases, these unconscious associations that our brains make that may conflict with our consciously and deeply held egalitarian beliefs. Right. So that's what makes these unconscious biases so very pernicious. You're using the word unconscious there, some conscious sometimes. Does that mean people can't overcome it and they can't help it? Um, so you can't, so I'll, I'll answer that in two ways. It is unsurprising because we've grown up in this racist society 
that our brains have learned these associations. But because we practice them so much by reading the news, watching TV, they become unconscious and we are not aware of them. So what we need to do is to create safeguards for us so that we don't act on them, right? That is the important piece. Put structures in place within your workplaces, within your lives, so that even though these unconscious biases exist, you can hopefully safeguard yourself and safeguard victims of your unconscious biases from having to suffer the consequences of your actions. Dino so there are ways. Thank you so much for joining mm -hmm. us. We have to get to a break, but we appreciate you being with us today. Coming up, it's almost been 30 years since Rodney King's beating opened Americans' eyes to police brutality. Now the nation is reckoning with the death of George Floyd. What will it take to end excessive force against African Americans? All police are not bad, um, but the ones that's, that's out here doing the killings, they need to be held accountable. For more Court TV, watch it on cable, over the air, Roku, or go to CourtTV.com and stream live gavel-to-gavel -gavel coverage. Catch up on the big moments from our current cases and relive some of Court TV's most historic trials. Court TV, your front row seat to justice. We have to address the officers who are seemingly uh, with impunity, using ex excessive force, explaining it away in a way that's offensive and intellectually dishonest. And that right now is the fire that needs to be put out. Welcome back to our Court TV special, Black and Blue. I'm Julia Janae. We're turning our attention now to interactions between law enforcement and the black community. Court TV's Benny Politan takes a look at what's at stake when those encounters turn deadly. We want to warn you, some of these images are graphic. Almost 30 years ago, citizen video captured Los Angeles police officers pummeling Rodney King. It was a precursor to today's viral videos of officer-involved deadly force. Eric Garner, Staten Island, New York, 2014. His friend's cell phone video goes viral. Orlando Castile, Minneapolis, Minnesota, 2016. I was about to reach for him. I told him to get his hand out. He had, you told him to get his ID, sir, his driver's license. Alton Sterling, Baton Rouge, Louisiana, 2016. I'm saying what I did. So move on. I ain't Hey, bro, put your put hands, your hands on the car. Put your hands on the car. Now, George Floyd's death is the latest case to illustrate what black people have long said about being the targets of excessive force. And it was captured on a teenager's cell phone. Get up and get in the Mama, car right. I can't. We've been here before. No justice. No peace. No justice. No peace. But something feels different about the reaction to Floyd's death. Around the world, more protesters of different races are joining black people in the streets with a clear message. There's more research today about police encounters with African Americans than there was during the Rodney King incident. According to a recent study, the sixth leading cause of death of young black males is police use of force. The authors conclude black men are two and a half more times likely to be killed by police than white men. For Sheila Clemens Lee, those statistics reflect her new reality a life without her oldest son. If you had a bad day and John Fix came around, you know, 
he changed the whole whole scenario of things and made you laugh because he was silly. He just loved life. 31-year-old son Jaquis Clemens was shot and killed by a police officer during a traffic stop in Nashville, Tennessee in 2017. His family, friends, and supporters waged a campaign seeking justice. They collected enough signatures to get a community oversight board on the ballot, and voters approved it. Today, the board investigates allegations of misconduct toward the Metro Nashville Police Department. How do you see the relationship between police and, and, and the black community? I see a huge problem because the police is trained to kill black and brown people. They're trained that way. With more police use of force encounters being captured on camera, I asked retired veteran police officers, Sergeant Cheryl Dorsey and Lieutenant Randy Sutton, if there's a black and blue problem in this country. Right now, the problem that's most at the forefront is the violence by the police. We see it over and over. We see it minimized and mitigated. Well, there is a perceived problem and that perception then becomes reality. Is there any sense that, um, that race has anything to do with who is questioned, who is stopped, who is spoken to? I don't believe so. I mean, listen, I was a cop for 34 years, um, and I, I policed for much of my career uh, an area that was predominantly black. So if, if, you're, if you're policing a black community or a Hispanic community, you're gonna have, you're gonna have mostly interactions with Hispanic people. As the videos lead to more arrests, suspensions, and firings, Sergeant Dorsey says officers still get the benefit of the doubt. Great deference is given to the version that a police officer gives, and more importantly, if you kill someone, then there's only one version, and it's the one the officer tells. And so we have to address the officers who are seemingly, uh, with impunity, using ex excessive force, explaining it away in a way that's offensive and intellectually dishonest. And that, right now, is the fire that needs to be put out. Court TV's lead anchor, Vinnie Politan, joins us now. Vinnie, thank you for being here. Thank you for that report. I know you cover stories on the criminal justice system every single day. But what are the studies about fatal officer-involved shootings? What are they telling us? Well, first, the two numbers that jump out from the piece, right? You've got uh, the sixth leading cause of death of young black men and the two and a half times more likely to be killed if, in fact, you are black versus white. So there were two studies we looked at, one from the National Academy of Science, University of Michigan, University of Maryland, and another one from a professor from Harvard. And in both those studies, they looked at what happens once the interaction with police begins. And in both studies, they came to the conclusion that the likelihood of you dying once you interact with police, there's no racial disparity. Same chances of dying if you're white versus black. So now let's go back to that number, two and a half times more likely. It's because there are more interactions. If you want to lower that ratio and that rate, you've got to lower the number of interactions between the police and the black community. Vinny, thank you so much. Let's bring in our special guest to talk about those interactions. Paul Butler is a former federal prosecutor and a law professor at Georgetown University Center. He also is the author of the book Chokehold, Policing Black Men. Attorney David Atunga also still with us. Paul, let me start with you. Vinny just mentioned more interactions. That means more violent encounters. Why is this rate of interaction so high? So George Floyd was stopped by the police in Minneapolis for allegedly using a fake $20 bill. Eric Garner in Staten Island, New York, 
arrested for allegedly selling a Lucy tobacco cigarette on the street. When the police tried to make those arrests, they claimed that the men resisted, resulting in the tragic escalation to death. Too many encounters between police officers and citizens of color for petty dumb stuff like counterfeit fake $20 bill, tobacco cigarette, that lead to tragedy. So one way to make the police do better is to prevent them from making arrests for minor nonviolent crime. They should just have to give a ticket like you get for a traffic infraction. That is one of the options that we've seen. David, talking about one of the names that has been at the center of this movement, Brianna Taylor, and no-knock warrant. She was the EMT who police uh, executed that warrant on her home. What has been your reaction to that particular story and that interaction with police that turned deadly? My reaction is, I mean, frankly, I've been outraged. You know, this woman was in her home asleep. She was shot eight times. There have been no arrests made at this. They're, they're passing Brianna's law. Yet, there are no arrests that have been made. What could she possibly have done that made her threatening? How could this shooting be legally justified? And yet, the officers have no consequences. Uh, Paul, you testified at the House Judiciary Committee following George Floyd's death. Also, his brother was there testifying. Is there a lost trust? And that's something you talked about when you talked to these congressmen. Well, when you say lost trust, that makes it sound like that there was trust in the first place. There has never, not for one minute in American history, been peace between black people and the police. And all of the times African-Americans have set aside the traditional civil rights protest, the nonviolent marching, bringing court cases, and instead black folks have risen up in the streets, those times have all been because of something that the police have done. So if you look at these uprisings from Watts in the 60s to L.A. in the 90s to Minneapolis and Atlanta in 2020, well, all of those are about outrage from American citizens because the police have killed another black man. The title of your book is Chokehold. And that reminds me about the push that there has been to try and get chokeholds banned across the country. That's a policy. But when we look at George Floyd's death and the way the officer had his knee on his neck, everyone has agreed that that was against that department's policy. How do we regulate it when the lawless are also the law? Police reform is about transparency and about accountability. It's been against New York Police Department regulations to use a chokehold for 30 years. But in the five years before Eric Garner was killed by an illegal chokehold, there have been a thousand complaints that the NYPD had received about other cops using this banned procedure. And guess what happened to the vast majority of those complaints? Nothing. And that's typically the story And when a citizen files a complaint against a cop for excessive force, for being rude or unprofessional. Nothing happens. Officers are not held accountable. And until that changes, it doesn't matter what kind of reforms you put on the book or what Rules are in the employee handbook. If cops know they can get away with stuff, they will continue to do stuff.
Accountability is key. Professor Paul Butler, thank you so much for joining us, author of Chokehold, Policing Black Men. We are going to be coming up in a, just a few moments with the current social climate. It's not new. Protests, both peaceful and violent in the wake of officer-involved shootings. There's something about this moment that feels different. Has America truly turned a corner? When we come back, we take a closer look. Follow Court TV live over the air, uninterrupted. If you're watching television with an antenna, just rescan your channels now to add Court TV. And go to CourtTV.com to see the exact channel position and more ways to watch Court TV in your area. I've been heartened to see those in law enforcement who recognize let me march along with these protesters. Let, let, let me stand side by side and recognize that I want to be part of the solution. Uh, and who've shown restraint and volunteered and engaged and listened, because you're a vital part of the conversation. And, and change is going to require everybody's participation. Welcome back to Core TV special, Black and Blue. I'm Julia Janae, your host. We are continuing our examination of the renewed movement toward racial equality and how our justice system has to change. Just days ago, President Donald Trump signed an executive order on police reform. This in response to persistent demands that appear to be causing a ripple effect across the nation. Take a look. I am begging you to speak up. I am begging you to be a part of solving the problems. As millions pass through streets in protests nationwide, lawmakers push to pass bills in response to demands for change. George called for help and he was ignored. Please listen to the call I'm making to you now. The brother of George Floyd, Villanese Floyd, is asking Congress to reform laws governing police in the wake of his brother's May 25th death while in police custody. History is being written now, and I'm determined to make sure that we are on the right side of history. After the arrest of four officers in connection with Floyd's death, Minneapolis's police chief makes a dramatic announcement. I am immediately withdrawing from the contract negotiations with the Minneapolis Police Federation. This move away from the police union in effort to kickstart a change in the city that's at the center of frustrations felt across the country. Calls for change echo in Georgia. Inside this courthouse, details about Ahmaud Arbery's alleged killers reveals Travis McMichaels and William Bryan's use of the N-word. Georgia legislators proposed scrapping the state's 19th century citizen's arrest law. It initially shielded the suspects in Arbery's death for two months. This wasn't an accident or self-defense, but this was hatred that was motivating this action. The state also looks to pass a hate crimes law. Georgia is one of four states without one. Marissa Alexander is a vocal advocate for changes to laws that disenfranchise minority communities. She became a part of the criminal justice system as a convict in 2012 when she says she fired a warning shot at an abusive ex in self-defense. A Florida court ruled stand your ground laws did not apply to her case. She served three years of a 20-year sentence before her case was later re-examined and she was released. We can change as many laws as we want to, but if we have the people in the systems, um, in the actual judicial system, on down to the law enforcement officers who have biases, then we're gonna be right back to square one as far as I'm concerned. 
Alexander's own case was pushed to the forefront by grassroots organizations. Now, the passionate pleas from a revived Black Lives Matter movement also presses for financial changes. We believe it's time now for, to, to defund that police department. Defunding police, earmarking money for social and community programs, and even fining racial profilers who misuse 911. There is an African-American man I am in such a heart. He's recording me and threatening myself and my dog. In New York, representatives push for an Amy Cooper law, named for the businesswoman captured in a viral video calling 911, emphasizing the man's race and what appears to be a disingenuous fear. I'm being threatened by a man in the Rambo. Please send the cops immediately. A Grand Rapids, Michigan proposed law attempted last year to fine racially motivated 911 callers hoping to solve an issue Alexander says is often difficult to legislate, morality. There's solutions, but we all have to be able to say, you know what, this is the drastic measure we're willing to take. And so I think that's what the rest of the country is, like no more. Trial attorney David Atunga still with us and joining us now, Marissa Alexander, advocate and inspirational speaker. Marissa, thank you for being here. You shared your story with us. You were sentenced to spend 20 years in prison for firing a gun, protecting yourself, and you didn't injure anyone. How did you get help after being incarcerated? Well, thank you um, for having me, and happy Juneteenth. Um, the help that I received afterwards came from just public outcry, but more importantly for me advocating for myself while I was on the inside. And so once I was able to get it in the, into the hands of an organizer, a black female organizer, from that point on, I was able to um, get national attention on my case from CNN. And, you know, that's where I am today. So I was able to get free based off of the uh, traction my case picked up and the public outrage and some of the disparities and differences um, that happened with my case. I remember you telling me that there was a headline, a particular one, back in 2012 that really made you look at even your own case differently, and that involved George Zimmerman. Tell me more about that. Right. I mean, during that time, it was a lot going on with uh, Florida. I mean, I had already been um, incarcerated, but then the George Zimmerman case uh, came around, and that's when you started to hear more about the Stand Your Ground laws and how they were uh, being applied and then also shortly after that, maybe a year or so, you then had Jordan, Jordan Davis's case. And so there was just a, a lot going on with Florida. And I believe that the stand your ground laws has always been an issue. But during that time, it was highlighted um, as it related to my case and where I was not able to uh, seek immunity um, through having a, a hearing. David, I want to ask you about something that came up in the piece, defunding police. You're from Chicago beautiful city, sometimes gets some headlines as well for their crime rate. I'm from Atlanta, similar situation. What do you make of a call to defund police? Well, I understand where people are coming from uh, with the call to defund police. I think there definitely needs to be some major reform, particularly in terms of the use of lethal force, because right now, an officer is justified in using lethal force by an objective, reasonable standard. That means if he reasonably believes it's necessary. I think that we should change that to a standard where it's absolutely necessary, and only then is lethal force allowed. Marissa, you saw laws change after you were released, after you became an advocate for issues that related to your case and the case of others. Are we still headed in the right direction as a country? 
I, I personally just do not think that um, instituting more laws that people still have discretion on whether or not they want to apply them or not is going to make a difference. And um, I think we've seen that time and time again because we continue to have to revisit laws and change them. As it relates to defunding the police, I don't think adding um, additional law for somebody else to then to, to decide uh, that level of, of discretion and then determine somebody's reasonability is going to help us. I do think that a part of defending the police would be to look at situations where if they are on administrative leave, that they are not paid and the taxpayers are not funding um, their salary. Um, there needs to be things like that. That's where I consider defunding the police. I don't believe that you know the taxpayers should have to take that burden, especially when you have instances where officers have plenty of other disciplinary actions of excessive uh, force and other complaints. So those are things we need to look at because there's usually a history with that. David, awareness has been key. There are a lot of celebrities who have been part of the push. In addition to being an attorney, you're also a Hollywood actor. What do you make of where we are now, what we're hearing, even in what we talked about, the Breonna Taylor case, where Beyonce is calling for the AG to push for arrests in this case? Yeah, you're absolutely right. Uh, I'm hopeful. I mean, Right now, this is a unique time because, yeah, we have celebrities who are helping. They are advocating for the first time. And it's not just African-American celebrities. It's white celebrities, too. And that makes our voice that much stronger. And it makes me hopeful that there is going to be some change. Marissa Alexander, advocate and author, thank you for joining us and sharing your story with us. Still ahead on Court TV, the victims whose names have become a part of a rallying cry. The next step in healing our communities and creating lasting change. We know it's going to take a lot of determination, but the journey to justice, though it won't be easy or quick, we owe it to those we've lost to continue to try. Our conversation continues next. I grew up in the home of a cop, my dad, along with another gentleman, Richard Jones, were the first two black police officers in the city of Orlando and Orange County. Back starting in July 3rd, 1951, deep in the deep south, under segregation, they walked to the beat, they wouldn't give them firearms, there were no radios. They had to take people to call boxes. And at first, they could not arrest anybody white. That was Judge Belvin Perry. He presided over the Casey Anthony murder trial on the bench for decades in Florida, speaking there about his father, a police officer at the helm of the civil rights movement. Attorney David Atunga still with us for our Court TV special, Black and Blue. David, what's your personal reaction hearing the judge there? I mean, you know, I don't really think it's all that surprising. This is a perfect example of how deeply entrenched racism is within law enforcement, going back for decades. Here you have African-American police officers who can't even carry guns and are not allowed to arrest white people. And while it's changed, this kind of thing still happens today. David, as attorneys, we want legislation, we want laws to be enough, but we've heard from our experts, it's gotta be a hard change at the beginning of this hour we saw images of brown versus board of education 1954 but in some small towns like the one my mother grew up in in the south it was only uh, it took 20 years for that to happen so still in the hearts of minds of everyone 
Thank you so much for being with us, David, today. We also thank you for joining us. We continue to remember those victims, their families, and those who continue to fight on their behalf from all of us here at Court TV. Thank you, and good night. There you have it, Black and Blue, a Court TV special. I want to thank all of the Court TV staff who helped put this show together and for sharing it with us on the podcast. If you'd like to see the show, it's available on demand on the Court TV website. Just follow the link in our show notes. That's it for this week, folks. But I want to tell you about another podcast that Court TV has. It's hosted by me also, which is why I'm telling you, of course. It's called Murder and the Menendez Brothers, and it's episodic. So it's six-part series where we take a look back at that incredible trial from the early days of Court TV. Episodes one and two are already available. Episode three drops on Tuesday. That's it for now, folks. Have a wonderful day, a wonderful week, and don't forget to hug the kids. This podcast is a production of Court TV. Go to CourtTV.com for more content, trials on demand, and to find out how to watch Court TV in your area.